Harry, are you wearing another an Ameri- wild are you, card? Yeah, an American Eagle shirt. No, I don't know what I'm wearing. I don't actually look at the clothes I pick out before I put this them on. This podcast was deliberately not video. <laughs> It's the 538 Elections Podcast. We're still in soft launch beta mode, but we've been putting this out into the world as we continue to pilot. Thanks for joining us. My name is Jody Avergan, and we're back from the holiday break with less than a month to the Iowa caucus, and you can really feel it. It's finally the year in which this thing we're obsessing over is actually happening. Uh, Donald Trump – yeah, Harry looks very excited. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Donald Trump released his first video – campaign ad this week. Uh, Bill Clinton made his first solo appearance for his wife's campaign, and President Obama has announced that he plans to take executive action on gun control. No surprise, the candidates for the GOP nomination have had a big reaction to this as they've been out there on the trail. So let's talk about it all. Claire Malone, politics reporter for 538, is here. Hi, Claire. Happy New Year. Thanks, Jody. Happy New Year to you, too. And Harry Enton is here, of course. Harry. Hi, everybody. Very excited. I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, Nate Silver is on the road. Nate is like at the moment flying over the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic by now, probably. The Atlantic by now, probably. So that voice you hear is Micah Cohen, politics editor. Micah, thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. The boss is not here, so we can do whatever the fuck uh, we want. I'm not sure how I grade out. Trading Nate Silver for me is... (laughs) Not great trade. Oh, you edit Nate. We could probably still make the playoffs. I think I do. I do edit a lot of his stuff. Um, You're the guy who makes him. I'm the hidden hand, the real brains behind the operation. (laughs) The Nate Whisperer, the wizard. You're the wizard of Oz. The wizard behind the curtain. Nate is the face. Yeah, I am the brains. (laughs) (laughs) You actually have that crocheted hanging over your desk. Uh, Okay, let's let's get going and let's start where we always start, which is trying to discern the meaningful from the BS in the world of polling. So every week we. We take an example of a poll cited by media or a candidate and ask, good use of polling or bad use of polling? And so this week's example comes from NBC, where they proclaimed that white Republican women are the angriest people in America. Here's Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. He introed this by saying, and we'll discuss this after we hear the clip, anger and frustration have arguably been the two defining characteristics of the election so far. And then he talked about some of the findings of this poll. We asked Americans, compared to a year ago, do you get angrier more often than you used to about current events and news? Overall, 49% of Americans said they are angrier today and more often than they were a year ago. So who is the angriest? Well, one group, whites. Turns out white Americans are angrier than African Americans and Latinos. And while there is anger on both sides of the aisle, there's more anger among Republicans than Democrats. 61% of Republicans are angrier than last year compared to just 42% of Democrats. And here is our big myth-busting moment. It's women who are angriest. 53% of women said they're angrier today uh, than a year ago compared to just 44% of men. And guess what? It's mostly white women uh, that are angriest. 58% say they're angrier today compared with 51% of white men. So you can't just write the angry white guy story anymore. Okay, Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. That that poll, by the way, uh, was NBC and Esquire magazine teamed up to do that poll. But Micah, uh, good use of polling or bad use of polling? So 
I'm going to give, a, I'd say, good use of polling for the most part. I thought it was an interesting poll. I thought, you know, the more these guys ask questions creatively and, and you know, the more attention is paid not just to the horse race, but, you know, what voters think. So good use of or polling. Or feel in this case. Or feel or emote, you know. The one thing I'd say is I'm not sure how much stock I put in angrier than you were a year ago, right? Like, I'm not sure how angry I was a year ago. I don't know if you guys... Are you not keeping I, your rage I, journal, my, Micah? My, yeah. <laughs> I remember how angry you were a year ago. He, he was so mean to me. Oh, his edits were so harsh. So yeah. I don't think this is necessarily a poll that shows people are angrier than they were a year ago. I think it's a poll that shows some people are angry. I also think I wouldn't read this as people are like quite literally really really angry it's more just a statement i think of a political point of view i was kind of irritated by the way that it was framed in this thing of it's what a what a myth-busting thing that women are angry first of all as the only woman on this podcast let me say women have a lot of reason to be angry thanks to the like in general in america that's true thanks to some institutional sexism going on are you angry i'm a little angry right now but are you angrier than you were a year ago (laughs) that's a good question and readers here's a here's a tip I highly recommend, if we want to talk about female anger, a novel by Claire Massoud called The Woman Upstairs. Lots of controversy surrounding female anger in that. But anyway, that just, it sort of peeved me a little bit because it's like... I'm, so you are angry. You're I, angrier than you were before you heard this poll. That's right. I kind of am. Yeah. But so what what are you objecting to then, Claire? If- so so that so my objection is initially just like annoyance that people find, think that women should be sort of this, these plastic right. characters all the time. But I will point out just just saying that like this isn't actually a new thing which is that um you know i think people are the theme of the election has been people are angry and scared um security moms was like a thing that the bush campaign went after so women who are worried about this i mean this is sort of the stereotype but women are worried about the safety of their families and therefore they're more likely to buy into a strong national security um stance by you know and let's say a a republican this year a trump or a ted cruz Harry, this caught my eye. It's caught all of our eyes just because it was a, a poll about emotion more than about uh, issues. Like how often do people do this kind of poll? Well, first I just want to point out I think the theme music that was playing in the background <laughs> for Chuck Todd was fantastic. I'd love to get the track of that. So, Chuck, if you're listening, please send that my Friend way. of the site, Chuck Todd. <laughs> Got to love Chuck. Um, you know, I think what, I would take a step back and say I think this is really a reflection of what we've seen all along in the right direction, wrong track numbers. You know, that's a, uh, something that's taken by pollsters over and over again. And we have Which seen, is basically, do you think the country's headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? Right, right track, wrong track. Right, whatever the exact phrasing is. And we consistently see over the last eight years that more Americans believe this country is on the wrong track than on, in going in the right direction. And so it would make sense that they are angry. I mean, I don't, I, 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 to me, this isn't such a final one. Oh my goodness gracious! This is you know a huge thing. I think that makes sense in the context of the politics that we're living in. And I, I just to circle back to what um, Micah was saying in terms of you know are you angrier than you were a year ago and whether we can judge that or not. I go back to a 2012 election example whereby Republicans were saying they were a lot more enthusiastic to vote than they were four years ago. But then in fact you ask them on a scale how enthusiastic are you? 
And then it turned out there was no difference between Republicans and Democrats, even though there was on the are you more enthusiastic than you were four years ago. So I'm not quite sure I'd read too much into that. But enthusiasm has a very clear line towards like you're going to go out and vote, right? The sort of presumption under here is that if people are angry, they're going to get mobilized. But is there any indication that that's actually true? Uh, Unfortunately, this is one of these situations whereby we don't have a data set going back very far. But we haven't seen really a lot of effects from people being angrier than or, you know, believing that the country was more on the wrong track than there used to be. Elections have tend to basically play out as we have expected them to based upon history. Maybe this year will be different. Obviously, Donald Trump leads in some of the polls right mm-hmm. now. But I think there's a reason why a lot of us doubt that Donald Trump is going to end up being the Republican nominee. We tend to believe that things are going to turn out the way that they've always had. But we'll see. Uh, we have to move on, but I'll just add one thing, which is I, – I mean I just admire this kind of polling that tries to go beyond yeah. sort of the, the the lame and repetitive sort of issues questions or the who will you vote for questions. I think they may have just picked the wrong emotion. I think that obviously these are tied together, but fear may have been the better thing well, Jody, to ask anger about. leads to fear. Exactly. I mean fear obviously they're to tied hatred. together. And we're going to talk about Donald Trump and his first act. His first campaign ad, which I think has lots of elements of fear in it, but that's the emotion that I think is the one to sort of like try and and parse and and is actually the one that comes slightly before anger in many ways. I mean the the Republican debate that was ostensibly about foreign policy was basically a fear off, you know, who can create the most fear in the audience. And so I I, I wonder – I'm just curious how they chose anger versus fear versus – I don't know. Yeah. Sad fear leads to suffering. Remember that. Queasiness. Queasiness. How queasy is the nation? <laughs> how okay. icky do you feel? Well, let's, <laughs> let's move on to uh, a candidate who is likely feeling all of those emotions at once right now, which is Ben Carson. So a couple weeks ago on this podcast, Claire, you talked about all the quiet conversations that were going to happen um, over the Christmas New Year's break uh, and the sort of like huddling and the reassessment of campaigns and so forth. And I... It, from all reports, the Carson camp had one of these quiet and then not so quiet conversations. The eggnog curdled. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of uh, blew up. Um, and this is like catnip for political reporters to sort of watch a campaign melt down in real time. This was a weird. It this was, was a weird. One. So, was really weird. OK, so that's, I guess, part of my question, which is. Was this weird or is this just a, something that happens to campaigns all the time is that they have these moments where all the advisors get fired and uh, people start you know, uh, sniping about each other through the press? It was weird. I think it was weird in the way it played out because it partially involved the media in the way it played out, which is that Carson's team invited two post reporters or one post reporter, Robert Costa, to, to basically to, the, to Dr. Carson's uh, house to have sort of an on the, you know, on the record mm-hmm. chat. Uh, and some things were said in that chat about, you know, sort of, insa- you know, Carson saying that he had some doubts, perhaps, or there were lots of changes, you know, that would be on the table, um, which made his campaign and manager uh, perhaps understandably nervous and, and led to some um, some some festivist airing of grievances. Yeah. Imagine if Nate, <laughs> while he's on vacation now, suddenly we hear he did some interview and he's like, yeah, there's going to be some big shakeups over at 538. <laughs> right. That would be. Queeze inducing. <laughs> yeah. Depends who you are. Uh, but isn't this also kind of the classic thing that happens when 
a campaign starts to lag in the polls, and especially a front-running campaign sure, drops to yeah. the bottom, then all of a sudden you fire all of your advisors. People start blaming each other. There's a power struggle totally. for who's going to be the, the 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 lead advisor. Yeah. I don't know. This this felt so like there, interesting, but not maybe not that new. No, it's there are parts of it that aren't that new in the sense that. Carson surges to the top of the field, then loses some momentum, and all of a sudden, there's a campaign shakeup. And yeah. step. But as Claire points out, there there were parts of this that were really weird. It was an Us Weekly breakup rather than a breakup uh, That's a really good orchestrated by publicists. The other part of this yeah, is... Yeah, well, nothing about the Carson campaign ever screamed orchestrated <laughs> by publicists or, like, you know, having a sort of, like, coherent message. So but this is not that far outside of the way that campaign has always been run. Well, that's the other part of this is, right, Armstrong Williams, who is a longtime Carson friend and apparently is, if you believe some of this reporting, the source of some of this ill will. Um, he's not even technically part of the campaign, yet has been serving sort of as a trusted advisor, trusted advisor. And if you were just going by like kind of the media, you would think he was the, running the campaign, yeah. basically. So. Look, what does all this mean? It's not a great sign, Be, even beyond the fact that if your campaign is undergoing a big shakeup, it's usually not for a good reason. Even beyond that, the fact that they couldn't even do a shakeup in like a discreet well-executed, way. discreet way, I think it symbolizes a lot of the problems Carson has. So one more thing about the Carson campaign itself, and then we'll move on to sort of Iowa and and and, and where his voters are going to go and so forth. But he raised a lot, uh, actually, a, f- a fair amount of money, right? This is this is all a, a, a fake mirage. He's spending so much to raise that money. I mean, we got those lithograph things, right? Did, did we get one of those delivered to the office where he where it's literal lithographs? Oh yeah, yeah. Of his fa- ben Carson's face. He looks great. He looks fantastic. I mean, I I haven't seen this. <laughs> he ha- he spent a lot of money on direct mail. Yes, he spent right. so much money to raise this money, so the cash on hand just ends up being. Much smaller than I'm, you might otherwise expect. I, I'm looking at a, a David Graham article in The Atlantic from October. Granted, this is a little bit out of date, but he says that Carson's burn rate was 69%, which was considered very high, which means that they were bringing in a lot of money, but also expending a lot of money not only on direct mail stuff, but also sort of like the stuff that goes into fundraising again. Uh, Harry, I saw a tweet from friend of the site, John Dickerson, host of Face, Face the, the Nation, Nation. <laughs> yes, who uh, – tweeted a kind of real clear politics graph of the average of Iowa polls over the last couple of months and pointed out that the Carson and the Cruz lines kind of make a perfect X, right? Carson sinking down at a 45-degree angle and Cruz rising at a 45-degree angle. Is that too tidy a way to look at it or is that kind of the, the storyline? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think that Ted Cruz appeals beyond just evangelical born-again Christian voters who were Ben Carson's main base, but there's no doubt that Cruz has been able to build an Iowa lead because he's getting an overwhelmingly large amount of support from those who consider themselves born-again Christians or evangelicals, where Trump has been rather weak. So I, I think that, yeah, there's definitely a connection going on there. But, I mean, is is it is it possible to say that the Carson supporters, the first candidate, the first candidate they look for after Car- Carson is Cruz? I, I, I don't know if it's that quick, you know, one, oh, no longer Ben Carson, we're going to Ted Cruz, but I think it's those voters who might have been more apt to support Ben Carson or say that they were going to were then going to become Cruz 
voters or them could possibly be Huckabee or Santorum voters, although I don't but think they'll end likely. up being. Yeah. But that type of born-again evangelical, evangelical Christian voters, yeah. I mean, it also, if you look at the national tri- polling trend lines, the Carson sinking also corresponds pretty perfectly with the recent Trump surge. So it's right. possible there could be a lot of things going on, but nationally, Carson voters maybe jumping chip and going to, to Trump as well. Uh, we should also just point out that Carson's like still in the race. Yep. I feel like we're eulogizing him and talking about it in the past. He's still in the race. He's actually like still polling kind of fourth nationally and uh, in Iowa as well. And it's actually a nice reminder of that this is really an expectations game, right? If Ben Carson had been like hanging around in fourth all along, then maybe they'd be like okay with that and say, okay, we can make a one-month push from fourth. But because they were in first place, you know, is it better to have led and lost than never to have led at all. That's such a deep, good question, Think about that. Jody. That's what's rattling around in Ben I Carson's I know the head. answer to that question. Okay, well, let's but... think about the answer to that question <laughs> and look forward uh, a month to Iowa. We are under a month away from the Iowa caucus. So, Claire, uh, you know, where, where do you stand? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Well, I don't think my chances for president are good. Um, no, I don't know. You know, I think it's I think the one thing that everyone says, and I'm sure Harry's going to say this in about 30 seconds, is that a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of things are up in the air for the next month. So I think basically what's going to happen is uh, there's basically going to be like a ground invasion of Iowa by campaign buses and people are going to be by us, by us, by us. And is it a 30 day push? Is it a one month push? Or are we still in we don't know territory? until we're two weeks out. I mean, when when can we just start to take these things seriously? February 1st. <laughs> the, day, the morning of? <laughs> eh, no, later that day. Okay. <laughs> February 2nd. February 2nd, yeah. I mean, look, the polls are going to get better as we get closer. And what I mean by better is they'll be more predictive. Obviously, you know, people change their minds. So I think it's a little unfair to say the polls are bad now. The polls are perfectly fine. It's just that people are going to change their mind. Look. I think most people agree that Ted Cruz is the favorite going into the Iowa caucus for any number of reasons. That doesn't mean, though, that he's going to win. The polls are not meaningless. It's just that there can be a lot of movement. That Harry, goes who's, on. A, who's a person in history who's like a month before the, the caucus was just, you know, really down and out? Rick like, Santorum. There, okay. Rick Santorum was really down and out. John Kerry and John Edwards were nowhere close to the lead. Um, at this point, and then Rick they, Santorum in 2012, 2012 right? John Kerry, Kerry in 2004, right? John Edwards in 2004. Um, so there are a number of examples of candidates who kind of came up at the last minute, got some late burst of momentum, and that's one of the things that I think is going to be key as we go into and why we shouldn't necessarily trust the final averages to be predictive. Momentum. And the trend line is almost as important as where they are in those final polls. That sort of extra boost of momentum, that trend line could propel someone to first or second or third that we weren't necessarily expecting. Part of what makes polling a primary really hard is you you get, you know, voters are sophisticated and they will vote strategically, right? So if a voter is looking at this race, let's say I'm a socially conservative voter in Iowa, I'm looking at this race and <clears throat> Ted Cruz is way ahead. I'm like, I'm going to support Ted Cruz. Let's say next week there's some type of scandal. Ted Cruz starts to go down. I'm going to look at my other options. And when I'm looking at my other options, I'm going to see where, you know, how much support does Ben Carson have, right? I, I, I would be willing to bet that part of Ben Carson's recent decline in Iowa isn't only voters who saw him answer 
kind of inadequately on these foreign policy questions. It's voters who then saw stories about Ben Carson doing poorly and said, I'm not going to waste my vote on Ben mm-hmm. Carson, so jump to Ted Cruz. So those kind of effects, that strategic voting can compound on itself. It makes it very hard to pull these primaries. It's the most famous echo chamber in America right now. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Uh, Claire, can we go back to this ground game question? Because you talked about how this is really when the campaigns are going to ramp it up and, and the and ground game is going to become a huge issue. And there's all these questions about Trump and his ground game and whether he has one or not. But what is what does a ground game actually look like in January as opposed to December or November of the year before? Well, there were a couple articles this weekend about how campaigns are, you know, basically like dumping staff in, into the state. You know, I think the Bush team was getting 20 new staff members that, you know, don't don't quote me exactly, but... Yeah, um, no, they took all their staff in Florida and sent them to the early states. Right, yeah. So I think I think there are some... Um, there's some some khaki wearing, you know, twenty five year olds. Yeah. By the way, it's 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 below freezing in Des Moines right now. So all those staffers who got moved from Florida to Iowa, yeah, are part from Miami yeah. to Iowa. But so it's so it's really because because in in my head, right, you have this notion of like Iowa, like how is it possible that an Iowa voter hasn't been completely saturated and inundated at this point? But you're but but you're saying there's a whole other level of saturation to be had in January. I think so. I think it's uh, I, I think you know they're, they're going to just up town halls up meet and greets you know people say that it's just sort of like you 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 stumble across candidates especially in the des moines area everywhere you know so i I think it's um i think for people who who don't live in iowa or haven't or haven't lived in a a swing state for instance just the amount of tv radio ads um people calling your house it's just going to be and then there's going to be some for sure some voter fatigue and and i think we should also keep in mind that most iowans don't actually caucus yeah, it's a pretty small amount that actually show number. up. Then right. they have to show up in person at that that night, so forth. Um, w- with Donald Trump specifically, this has been the big question. One of the reasons that Cruz is getting a lot of buzz or sort of credit is because he does seem to have a good data-driven ground game going into Iowa. And the big question with Trump is, does he have that in place? And he's getting like all this credit for for like mentioning that people should go vote at the end of his speeches now. He started doing that in the last two weeks, even though he, I think, got the date wrong in, in one of these stump speeches for the, for the date of the Expectations. caucus. Expectations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, is Trump going to mobilize voters to actually show up that night? So I think this, you know, Harry, will probably have a the idea of like whether or not Trump is going to turn out people who don't usually vote in caucuses, I think, is a strategy that their campaign is sort of banking on. So um, the word is that the, the Trump campaign has been doing um, training for how does a caucus work? So for people who might be – this is a thing that, that Iowa voter, voters who haven't caucused before are a little bit intimidated by the process. Um, and so the Trump team has been uh, doing some some learning sessions basically for people uh, to say, you know, get out there and participate in your in your civic duty. But that's that's the kind of big question, right, is will Trump support in the polls translate when actual voting begins? A uh, friend of the site, Nate Cohn, at the Upshot had an interesting article recently about how Trump's support was strongest among Democrats, basically. Democrats who identify as Republican, uh, Reagan Democrats, as they used to be called. Um, will they vote in a Republican primary you know, will these voters who typically less educated voters where a group turn that turns out less, will they vote? It's like the big wild card heading into February 1st. And Selzer has a pretty good record of uh, figuring out who's going to turn out and on. That's why the Des Moines Register poll that Ann Selzer is responsible for has been one of the most accurate. And she nailed 
the influx of new voters in 08, per, in 08 for Barack Obama to win the Iowa caucus. And her polling has been among the worst for Donald Trump. But wait, Harry, remind me. Meaning she's she, the most skeptical of Donald she, Trump. The, right? Her poll, her, the people, I mean, her poll is the most skeptical. She wouldn't say she's, you know, purposely skeptical. She would just say, hey, I ask whether or not that these voters say, are they going to participate in the caucus? And she calls up people, not just people who have participated in past caucuses, but a list of registered voters in that state. And they just have not said that they're going to turn out and vote. Can we talk about um, Bill Clinton? who is going to start making solo campaign appearances. He already has made one in New Hampshire. Harry, do we have any polling that gives us a sense of Bill Clinton's role in this campaign and whether he's an asset for Hillary Clinton? I mean, Bill Clinton is still very much liked by Democratic voters. Um, We know that going in. But at the same time, we know that voters are looking for at least voters in general looking for something new you know they're tired of the old ways um even if they value experience they also kind of want a new message so you know it's like a kind of weird split that's going on um but of course clinton entering the campaign opens up the whole idea of are we going back to the 1990s and there's all you know questions about bill clinton's personal conduct in office, and this brings it back into the front. Whether or not those are appropriate questions, I will not answer, but I think voters will. And the Republican candidates certainly have. They've certainly been taking advantage of of him being in the race and saying, and bringing up, you know, Trump over the past week has brought up Clinton's uh, extramarital affairs or accusations from back in the 90s and, um, you know, sort of saying, saying to voters, you know, granted, Trump also had a pretty public yeah. tabloid, tabloid affair. Um, so the, so so Clinton being back. That's a and, glass condo with Trump branding <laughs> all over it that he should not Trump be throwing stones from. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's interesting. It adds like a certain element of uh, – it's interesting. I mean I'll, I'll, that's what I'll say. Mike, I feel like – I don't think Bill Clinton – I think Bill Clinton is a really fun story. Uh I don't think he will have much of an effect on the race. I think he helps Hillary Clinton raise a lot of money for sure. But are there a universe of voters who are like, I don't know whether I'm going to support Hillary Clinton. Oh, Bill, he said to vote for her. Now I'm going to. I very much doubt that. Chelsea Clinton is out on the. I sent I Chelsea sent a, Clinton, on the other hand, is an interesting, you know, <laughs> game changer. Game changer. changer. Politico had a story this morning that Chelsea Clinton will be holding a late January fundraising session at uh cult cycle soul cycle soul cycle she will which is a cult favorite of uh in new york city so if you're that's in new york the best fundraising show friend just like get someone really really exhausted and then they'll say yes to anything <laughs> so can you write me if you write me a five thousand dollar check i'll let you have some water okay let's move on uh from people who want to be president and people who were president to people who are president which is president obama said that his new year's resolution is to tackle gun violence and he plans to announce this week an executive action attempting to close background check loopholes at gun shows and online and so this brings up kind of two questions which is how much do his policy decisions affect the election and then just in general how much will gun control feature in this race so uh I don't think it's a surprise that the GOP candidates all came out in reaction to this announcement and said, I disagree with this. But is there any daylight among the GOP candidates that we know of? Is there any disagreement in the way that they're staking out a a stance on on gun control in opposition to Obama here? Not really. They they don't like this. And 
And it's a good issue to get people in the Republican base fired up. Right. One of the things Obama did was actually cite polling in making his case, saying that the the majority of Americans favor this kind of work. And obviously, there's a million ways you can you can spin these kinds of polls. But according to Gallup, 55 percent of Americans think that in general they want uh, stricter control over the sale of firearms. So does Obama have like a a polling kind of grounding here, Harry? I, yes and no. Um, Yes, in the sense that when you ask Americans whether they want background checks, the overwhelming majority always say yes, somewhere in the 70s or 80s and in a few cases even the low 90s. In terms of more general questions about stricter gun control, uh, that Gallup poll you cited is one of the more optimistic numbers for um, the stricter side. I have a Quinnipiac poll in front of me in which it's only 47 percent support stricter gun laws, 50 percent oppose, and perhaps the most damaging number to the president is that the Republican Party, according to Pew Research, is more trusted on gun control than the Democratic Party is. Um, And I think that that's probably the best manifestation of where Americans are on the issue of gun control, just in general, and how it will play out in the political sphere. Micah, do you tend to trust polling around gun issues in general? It feels like it's one of the trickiest issues to pull around. I'm sure it's uh, like the the phrasing has a huge impact on the results you get. Yeah, phrasing has so how you word the question has a big impact. But uh, but uh, the main thing is, as Harry says, you have these vast majorities that, according to the polls, support these uh, measures. But then, you know, nothing ever happens. A part of the reason for that is there's this huge imbalance in, you know, salience. So I could think there's universe, universal background checks should be passed. But if it's like the tenth issue on my priority list. That might not matter much compared to Harry, who who is a big Second Amendment supporter, and it's number one on his priority list. Is there any evidence from the past that gun, this issue, guns, has actually played a role in a presidential election or even you know a high-profile other election? I, I think that there is some belief that guns played some role in West Virginia. In shift- 2000. Yeah. Shifting into the Republican column in the 2000 election, it, remember it had voted overwhelmingly for Bill Clinton in 1992 and 1996, and then Gore lost the state to Bush and therefore the presidency in 2000. So maybe, but I think that this is the type of issue that will get a lot of play and a lot of press, but most voters at the end of the day aren't going to be determining their vote because of how they feel about gun control. And look, actually, that 2000 example, this is a case where as the Democratic base has changed and become more diverse – And as kind of those Reagan Democrats we mentioned earlier have kind of fled the party and become more – identify as Republican, where the politics of this issue have changed, where now Democrats are much freer to openly advocate for gun control measures. You know, the – it used to be the debate was like Republicans were – pure Second Amendment advocates and Democrats were like, I love guns, and then kind of whisper on the margin, maybe we should do something on the margin. But also um, shootings. I mean, just like mass shootings have gone the mass up shootings so have much. Had an example. The, yeah. Absolutely. So, so the mass shootings in combination with Democrats are now, Democrats don't win West Virginia anymore. They don't win any of these states where gun ownership rates are high and where we can infer support for the Second Amendment is higher. So Clinton... Hillary Clinton came out in support of what Obama's doing. She actually kind of sort of took credit in a sense for this 
idea in that she said it was in my platform from the beginning that I would take executive action right. from the jump on guns. But that's why I, I think you know both sides will kind of use this issue to rally their base, to, to raise money, but it probably won't end up They're playing on totally different fields. Exactly. The fields have, this issue. have separated where there used to be some overlap where both sides were fighting over voters in West Virginia, for example. So let's wrap up. As we mentioned, we're going to be in Iowa next week. Any any thoughts about kind of what you are going to keep your eye out for, what you um, what you think will be the important kind of 53080 stories to track down, Claire? I'm going to be interested to, to hear what, what regular Iowans are saying about who they've been seeing the most or whose events they've been going to the most, just sort of like who's getting that, that buzz, that sort of, you know, the thing that's sort of hard to track in polls, the ephemera of what people are seeing on the ground. And, and that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that that's sort of what I'm looking for, which is even after we've had several candidates drop out, it's still a historically really big field. And part of what I'm curious about is how are voters navigating the field? Are there voters going to every uh, candidate's events and making sure they, they're seeing everybody or are voters just being overwhelmed by the direct mail and the TV advertisements and the rallies and just tuning it all out? So sort of how voters are dealing with, with the large Republican field all Twelve. Will be interesting. There are 12. 12. <laughs> we will end on that. Uh, we'll just, But we will point out that we are going to be uh, traveling next week uh, in the early part of the week. So we won't have a podcast on Monday, but we'll do a show from Iowa uh, towards the end of the week. And the site will have sort of rolling coverage throughout the week. But Claire Malone and Micah Cohen and Harry Enton, thanks for joining us in another one of these, these pilots. Thanks, Jody. Thanks. Shalom, everybody. And uh, let us know what you think. You can email us, podcast at 538.com. And, of course, find all of our coverage at 538.com. And we'll talk to you soon.